Welcome to Hope for Life, a broadcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington, bringing you hope for life through the teaching of God's Word. Today, our pastor, David Lunsford, is continuing a sermon series in the Gospel of John. If you would like to follow along, you can open your Bible to the Gospel of John. This week in the Ferndale newspaper, there were some coupons, and I haven't been reading the paper for a long time, about a year or so. We've been checking it out every week, and, uh, but there were coupons in there this week, and one of them was 75 cents off a gallon of milk at the Shell station. I said, yeah, yeah, save some money on the milk, and so I cut it out, and sure enough, we were out of milk that night, and so on the way home from choir practice, Sue and I stopped over there, and I went in, got my gallon of milk, and and put my coupon down, and gal says, well, our coupons are colored. That one's black and white. And I thought, oh, shoot, I'm, I'm, my coupon's no good now, you know. I'm thinking, I'm thinking I'm a loser, you know. And, and I said, well, I got it right out of the paper, you know. Well, she's kind of skeptical about that. So I went over and got a Ferndale paper, and I opened it up. I said, see, see right there? So she, she took my coupon and gave me my discount, but I don't think she really believed me. I, somehow, in her mind, something was not right with that, and she was a, a reluctant uh, coupon taker. So we come to the end of the gospel, of, or end of the chapter four in the gospel of John. We're going to see Jesus talking to a man that needs to just give up his his personal perspective, and just fully believe in Christ. He needs to take Christ's word for it and not doubt. Follow as I read John chapter 4, verse 43. Now after two days, Jesus departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus came to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The noble said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Jesus desired true, full, complete faith from this man who came and asked for help. Jesus had a plan in general about creating faith, and it revolved around where he was going. 
Um, Jesus, a few days before this, was at Jerusalem here. And, it's, and if we were to go back in the text, we would read that he says he needed to go back up to uh, Galilee, all the way up here, this area of Galilee. He needed to go back there, but he came through Samaria, and here is where we, meet, we met the woman at the well, right there at Jacob's well. And after he spent a couple of days there, he moved on up here to Canaan. This is where he had done the uh, put, turning the water into wine miracle. And there is Capernaum, where the nobleman was from. Look at, look at verse 4, chapter 4, verse 1, as I noted. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though he himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. Now go down to chapter 4. Verse, verse 44. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Verse 43, it says, After the two days he departed from there and went to Galilee. Why? For Jesus said a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now when you first read that, you might think, well, why did Jesus go there if they, if they held him in disregard? I think that's the answer right there. Jesus had a plan to go to Galilee because his, he had a purpose. And the purpose was to create faith or to bring faith to those people who were the most skeptical. He was going home to his home area, if you will, Listen to this experience, one of the first experiences Jesus had in his home country earlier, before this one we're looking at now. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today... This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Do you understand what he said? He said, this is a, he read something that they clearly knew was about the Messiah, the Savior that was coming. And when he got done reading it, he said, here I am. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Didn't he grow up right down the street here? <laughs> He said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them 
To none of the widows of Israel was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. Why is that? You know what he just said? What he just said was, in these special miraculous days, the two people who received the blessing were Gentiles. He said, here I am, I'm the Messiah, but you are going to reject me, and the blessing is going to go to the Gentiles. That's what he was saying to them. And so they were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they thrust him out of the city. Picture in your mind a mob scene where they are pushing him along. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff. Man, I'm glad that doesn't happen when I preach something people don't like. (laughs) Actually, if I ever say I'm the Messiah, you should do that. But anything short of that, you should let me go. (laughs) Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Obviously, this little bit of a miraculous thing going on there in verse 30, as in he just walked right through them and walked away, and they're all looking around going, where'd he go, where'd he go, where'd he go? That's the first time he preached in his hometown. Boy, I'm glad my first sermon wasn't like that. He laid it right out for him. Now, what should have happened when he preached that? They should have said, we're wrong. You're right that that is our temptation. That is how we are tempted to respond to you, but that's wrong. We will not respond that way. Uh, They just said, let's kill him. Let's just get rid of him. The guy who can't talk to us that way. This is the area. It's not the exact same city, but this is the area to which Jesus now says, I need to go back there. There seems to be, in Christ, this desire to go where belief is most challenged, if you will. He says, I am going to go back there and give those people another chance, another shot, if you will. And also, in the way that God laid these stories side by side, and the way the events are laid side by side with the woman of Samaria, and then the people of Samaria, look at, look at what happened with them in verse 39 of this chapter. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Look at how the Samaritans, the Gentile, or at least half Gentile or partial Gentiles, how they received Christ. And then he goes to his own home area to some Jewish people because they've already rejected him once. And it's not an accident that God throws these these two stories of faith side by side. Jesus was very purposeful in his actions. And now we come to the the actual uh, event here in chapter 4 where he demands faith. Look at verse 45. So he came to Galilee, and the Galileans received him. doesn't mean that they put saving faith in him. It just means that they welcomed him into their area. Having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, 
for they also had gone to the feast. Um, the curiosity of the Galileans is basically this, that they had heard about all of the miracles. You can go back in the text and see the reference in chapter 2, verse 23. It doesn't say what kinds of signs he did, but no doubt it was like the common amount, kinds of signs that he did. He healed people, he cast out demons, all of those kinds of things. And so the Galileans, what we see in verse 45 is, because he had done a bunch of miracles, they were willing to receive him and to give him an ear, to listen to him. Um, they had witnessed the miracles. Today, it would be similar to people perhaps reading the story of Christ, hearing how he works, and so they're saying, well, you know, God's done some good things, so let's, let's give him a listen, if you will. And so into the midst of this curiosity comes a man with a crisis. Look at verse 46. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. The nobleman, the nobleman was from Capernaum. One of the things that's interesting to me is what it just says was, or verse 47 says, when that nobleman who lived in Capernaum heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him. Now remember, there's no telephone, there's no internet, there's no newspaper, there's no means of communication other than person to person. And Jesus was moving, I mean, he spent two days in Samaria, and then he's up to Cana, and uh, this guy had heard about it, and he, he heard and he traveled about 20 miles for them, that would be about a half of a day's walk, and uh, he travels over there to see Jesus. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and he implored him to come down and heal his son, for his son was at the point of death. The word nobleman here means, it literally means of the king. So somehow this guy was connected with the king, and it's entirely possible he was connected with Herod, who was not actually a king, but they called him a king. And so this fellow was either in the king's family, or he was like what we would call a, a government official today, a high-ranking official. So he had money, he had power, he had, he had prestige, and he comes to ask for a miracle. My son is sick unto death, verse 47. One commentator said this, and I think it's a good observation. If it were not for his sick son, he would not have troubled much about Jesus. He wouldn't have walked 20 miles if his son wasn't sick. He didn't come, remember, to hear the preaching of Jesus. He came for a miracle. And he came for a miracle because he had great physical need in his life. I wonder if God has been stirring your pot lately. Or even perhaps more correctly, if God has been allowing it to be stirred Things happen to us, events happen, uh, changes come at work, changes come at home, challenges come, and one of the things that we need to be taking from that is that God may be calling to us. God is saying, hello, because what this man is going to get to, what he's going to arrive at is different than just a healing of his son. 
This guy was a man of means. He was of the king's, uh, he was connected with the king. Whatever medicine was available, he could have used it. He could have purchased it. He could have brought the doctor to his son. In fact, he comes to Jesus saying, you come with me. I mean, that's his mentality. So he obviously was a person of power. But he had to get desperate enough to come to Christ to begin with. And look how Jesus responds to him. Jesus doesn't say, oh yes, I can heal your son. Look what he says in verse 48. Then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. He criticizes this man, uh, but he doesn't criticize him alone. I hope you can understand this in your translation, but the word in the Greek language for you, Y-O-U, is in the plural form, which clearly means that when Jesus criticized, he wasn't just criticizing this singular man. He wasn't saying, hey, buddy, if you, know, if you have a problem. He was saying everybody in this region has a problem. Unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. What is Jesus criticizing here? Jesus is criticizing what I've, chosen to call miracle-driven faith. And he encountered this in a lot of people during his time on earth. He, he talked about it one time with the folks who wanted to come out and eat, but they didn't want anything beyond that, as in you know the, the, the five loaves and two fishes and the miracle that he did there. There was a couple of times when he provided food for large groups of people, and he says, oh yeah, they're happy to come and eat, but that's all they're interested in. They want a miracle. Miracle-driven faith What's the problem with that? First of all, it's selfish. This man did not come to Christ because he loved Christ. This man came because he said, I want my son healed. Now, that's not a bad desire. But it is not a God-centered desire. It is centered around his own life. He didn't come and say, Jesus, I want you to be glorified, so would you please heal my son and I'll give glory to you. He just said, hey, heal my son. Miracle-driven faith says, when it's selfish, says, do something for me. Take care of my problem. Take care of my issue. Fix my life. Do a miracle here. Jesus answered them and said, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. People who just want something from God. Secondly, miracle-driven faith is sensual. Now, by sensual, I'm not talking about sex. I'm talking about things that are tangible and physical in our, in our physical life. Our senses, we have five of them. Sensual faith says, show me something spectacular. I want to see God. I want to touch God. You know, there's a church up over the line in Canada where they claim that angel feathers have fallen from the, the rafters or miraculously appeared and floated down in the church. I'm not making this up, folks. Angel feathers. Now, I don't know why in the world we think angels have feathers to begin with. They're spirit beings. They aren't physical beings. And I don't know if somebody has dummied something up so that they're, you know, they're faking those people out or if there's just some, you know, everybody just says, oh yeah, I saw it, because it's like the emperor's clothes. They don't want to say they're not spiritual. I don't know what that is, but I'll tell you what it is at its, as it's, at its heart. It is a desire for something spectacular. 
I wanna, I wanna see the miracle. I wanna, you know, I wanna touch it. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said, teacher, we wanna see a sign from you. And the word sign is always talking about a miracle that would demonstrate the validity. They, you know, here, scribes and Pharisees, they knew the Old Testament law, the Old Testament truth, the prophets better than anybody else. They should have been able to look at Jesus and look at the truth and say, hey, he's the guy, he has to be. We wanna see a sign from you. But Jesus answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, Nineveh is where Jonah went and preached, okay? These are totally pagan, ungodly Gentiles in the Old Testament time, and Jonah went and preached to them. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation of Jewish folks and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, someone greater than Jonah is here. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? And you know, as I read this this week, it, it dawned on me how, how crazy it was that Jonah was sent to Nineveh, and we all know the story about Jonah and the whale and all that, but when he got to Jonah, do you know what he did? He walked through the streets and says, God's gonna destroy this place. God's gonna destroy this place if you don't repent. And you know what they did? They repented. That's the miracle of Jonah. He didn't do any miracles. He didn't like, he didn't say, uh, like Moses, here's my stick, I'm gonna turn it into a snake, boom, you know, or here's the, the lice appearing like in Egypt, you know, that sort of thing. He preached the word and they said, wow, you're right, we're sinners. And they repented in sackcloth and ashes, which means that they wore rough clothing and they put ashes on their head to show how remorseful they were for their sin. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, the people who had the whole Old Testament all in front of them, he said, you folks are asking for a sign, you're wicked. You should not be asking for a miraculous sign. Those men of Jonah were able to, or those men of Nineveh were able to repent at the preaching of Jonah and look, here I am, the son of God in human flesh, preaching the truth to you. He's essentially saying, I'm the greatest preacher you're ever gonna hear and you won't respond to me, you're looking for a miracle. I think the same thing holds true today, folks. We should not be looking for a miracle and then planning to believe afterwards. Jesus says we should, we should not be seeking a sensual kind of faith. Ultimately, miracle-driven faith is sinful. Why would I say that? I would say that because it's not faith at all. Hebrews 11, one and six says this, now faith, is the substance of thing, or the reality of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Here's the deal about believing in God. You have to believe. <laughs> um. There, have been, there are all kinds of fields of study which I endorse and encourage and have participated in which show supporting 
truths in the scientific and historic world around us that, that support the truthfulness of God's word. And those are wonderful things, but none of them absolutely prove the truth of God. Ultimately, you must come to a point where you take God at his word. Now, why would you be willing to do that? I'll tell you why you'd be willing to do that. Because God will be at work in you, prodding you toward that. God does some kind of work in our heart so that when we hear the truth, we go, you know what, that makes sense. That is the answer. I must believe that. But at that moment, there is a battle in your will. And the battle could be over the control of your life. The battle could be over uh, you know, a number of things. And you have to say, God, I will believe. I will not seek for a miraculous proof. I will not seek for you somehow to answer all of my unanswerable questions. I will take you at your word. Look at verse uh, 48. Jesus now calls this man to faith. When he's, first of all, the man, the man comes and asks for a miracle, and then Jesus he rebukes him in a way, and he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Unless you see the signs and wonders, then faith comes after, he says. The nobleman said, sir, and he actually uses the word Lord. This is a humbling point for the nobleman. For this, for this man of high human rank to call Jesus Lord is essentially to put him up. Lord, come down before my child dies. And Jesus says, go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. Jesus calls this man to faith. He called this man to faith, first of all, by criticizing his reliance on miracles. This man wanted to grab Jesus by the, by the shirt sleeve and drag him down to Capernaum where he could watch him heal. And, and Jesus says, you're wrong in that. Secondly, he, he, he refused to accompany the man. He basically said, I'm not going. He said, I'll heal him, but you've got to believe me for it. And thirdly, he challenged the man to come to faith by claiming that the healing was done. He said, go your way, your son lives. Now right there, that man had to decide, am I going to stand here and uh, put Jesus in handcuffs and drag him to Capernaum, or am I going to take him at his word? Well, the man made the right choice. It says he believed. He believed the word of Jesus. Ultimately, that is the question we must answer. Will you take Jesus at his word? Do you believe him? And if you do believe, you will act on what he claims to be true. This man here said, okay, I believe you, and he started walking home. He showed that he truly believed. What is the demonstration of faith? Well, first of all, we, we see the personal demonstration of this nobleman. The nobleman said, sir, verse 50, then he says, go your way. So the man believed. Verse 51, and as he was now going down, as he was going down, see, he would have been up on a higher elevation in Cana, and he would walk down to, to Capernaum, which is on the, on the Sea of Galilee. As he was going down, his servants met him and said, your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better, and they said, yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. 
So the father knew it was at the same hour in which Jesus said, you say, wait a minute, did he go down the same day and all that? It's probably like after midnight. So it's yesterday, you know, technically in, in their thinking it would be yesterday. And of course, uh, in, in accuracy, that would be the case. The man came to believe in Jesus, to take him at his word. He became, he was not originally, but he became like another government official. Listen to this from Matthew chapter 8. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion, that would be a a Roman, like a captain uh, in the Roman army. He would be over a, a large number of soldiers. The centurion came to him pleading with him saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Do you notice that this guy doesn't really make so much of a demand on Christ. He just says, my servant's lying at home. And Jesus says, I will come. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. Just speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. Another one, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard that, he marveled. (laughs) And he said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. This man was a Gentile. He wasn't raised necessarily in a godly home. And he comes to Jesus. He says, Jesus, just say the word. So you're the man, just say the word. And, and this, this, this nobleman that we're reading about in John 4, he didn't think that way, but in the end, he comes to that conclusion. He says, you know what? If this Jesus is who he says he is, and he tells me my son is healed, then I'm gonna take him at his word, and I'm gonna go home and, and find out that that, in fact, is the case. What is the normal response of faith to God today? The normal response is this from Romans 10 to 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. As the word of God is preached from this pulpit and you're listening, as you read it for yourself at home, as you would listen to it being taught on the radio or the TV, When you hear the word of God, it is capable of producing faith in you because it is powerful. For the word of God is living and powerful. The the power of the word of God is not me or my preaching. It is God's word, pure and simple on its own, being carried out to you because the Holy Spirit himself empowers it. That's what is in your heart when you are listening and you're thinking, yeah, I need to work on that. That's why when I preach, sometimes you think, Pastor Dave, have you been reading my journal? Boy, it just sounds like you're preaching right to me. And I can assure you, I am not preaching to any particular person. That's the miracle of the Holy Spirit when he takes that word. And in your heart and in your mind, you're going, yes, yeah, I got to work on that. And maybe today you're sitting here and saying, you know what? I, I do have a hard time taking God at his word. That is God's expectation, not only for the nobleman, not only for the the woman at the well, not only for the centurion, it is God's expectation for us. It is for those who need to come to faith in Christ and for those who have already come to faith in Christ. If you take Jesus at his word, if you believe what he said, 
first of all, you will receive him. Jesus said that he is the Savior. He died on the cross so that his blood might wash away your sins. He says that you are a sinner, that you can't save yourself. You can't be good enough to earn heaven. But if you will come and say, you are the Savior, you claim to have forgiven me, I take you at your word, I receive you. If you do that, if you believe in the word of Christ, you will become a child of God. That's the, the marvelous truth of John 1.12, to as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. If you take Christ at his word, you will first of all receive him. And you have to decide today, are you going to do that or not? Are you going to be like this nobleman who, you know, no doubt he struggled for a while and he said, okay, I'm going to believe him and off he goes. He believed. Secondly, if you take Christ at his word, you will obey all of his truth, not just the word about salvation. You will obey sooner and not later. What am I talking about there? I'm talking about those of you that have already come to faith in Christ and you have daily struggles. You, you, you have struggles moment by moment and you have some larger struggles and you have to decide, will I choose to honor God by obeying Christ or will I say, well, I, I really don't believe that or I really don't like that. You stand at the Y in the road and you have to choose righteousness or sin. God says you should choose righteousness. If you really believe Jesus Christ, you will choose to obey. Ultimately, it is an issue of faith. It is an issue of whether or not you believe his truth will really work. There's you know, some things you have to say no to, some things you have to give up. And, and, and you think, oh, my life won't be good without those, or I, I don't want to lose that control, or whatever it is. But you have to believe that God is going to work on the other side. If you take Jesus at his word, you will serve diligently with love. Christ calls us to serve one another in the body of Christ. So those three men came out and served you by putting that sheetrock up this week, and a couple ladies are serving you by putting out coffee and cookies over there, and some people are serving by taking care of the kids right now. If you believe what God said, you will seek to serve, and you will do it diligently with love. You will do it for God, diligently for him. If you take Jesus at his word, you will give with joy. God loves a hilarious giver or a joyful giver. You will look at your resources and say, you know what? Boy, that's tough, but God has given all of this to me. I'm going to give back to him, and I'm going to do it with joy. You have to believe that God will provide for your needs when you write that check and put it in the offering, when you open up your wallet, take that cash out. Surely there is a sacrifice to be made, but that's the joy of, that's the, the joy of living in the excitement of the Christian life. I, I, I wish I could tell you the series of ways that God has given to me just in this last week or two. And, you know, I, I looked at my prayer list this week and I realized I was praying for a certain thing and I had no idea how God would provide it or when he would provide it. It's not, it's not a need like food and water, but it was something I thought I needed. And here down the road, I looked at that and I said, you know what, I prayed for that and God has brought it to me by bringing me around here and he's, he's provided for my needs in part because I'm willing to trust him and give to him. And folks, I'm not bragging. I'm just challenging you to say, hey, this is the most exciting thing. I can give and God takes care of me. That's exciting. That's more exciting than hanging on to it, frankly. 
It really is. If you take Jesus at his word, you will pray. Jesus said, ask for things in my name. He said to do it. You will pray with faith. You will say, yes, I must pray. You must be a praying person. You will worship. He said the Father is seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. You will worship with thanksgiving. You will not only worship when you come here and take joy in singing to God and praying to God and learning from God, but as you go your way or throughout the week, every time something good happens, you will say, thank God. Every time God spares you from something. Have you ever had an awareness that God spared you? Like you're talking on your cell phone. You go, oh, better hang up so I don't crash. That's a moment of worship. It's also a moment of warning, but it's a moment of worship. Say, thank you, God. I say thank you to God for anything like that. You know, I've only cut one thumb off in a skill saw in all all my years of working on stuff. I'm thankful for my other one. I'm not silly about that. I mean, God has protected me so many times in so many ways when I'm working with power tools. You worship God, and then you'll witness with expectation. You say, hey, God wants me to share his truth. What a wonderful opportunity is mine. Do you really believe God? When I lived, when I lived in Oregon, uh, there was a teenager that I'm going to call Junior Jones. That wasn't his name. He, he was a junior. And he pumped gas out at the Shell station. And, uh, you know, in Oregon, they have to have professionals pump your gas because you're not qualified to do so. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this, this teenager was a professional gas jockey. <laughs> and at that station, they actually would check your, ga- or your oil back in the day as well. And one time, I, you know, I, I bought my Diet Cokes there, so I got to know Junior Jones and some of his fellows. And one day, I'm there getting my Diet Coke, and, and he comes walking in, and he says to this customer, you need a quart of oil in your car. And the customer says, well, I'd like to see the dipstick. <laughs> Not that I don't believe you or anything. <laughs> well, they clearly didn't believe Junior Jones, and really if they'd have known him better, they wouldn't have believed him or trusted him. <laughs> Folks, you're either going to take Christ at his word or you're not. If you're waiting for a miracle, you're going to be waiting for the rest of your life because he is not going to do that for you. The miracle is, is this book lasting for 2,000 years. The miracle is people's lives that have been changed right here. He is calling you to faith. And, and if he's calling you, you know it in your heart today. And if he's calling you to some next step of faith that you need to take, maybe, maybe it's public confession of your faith through baptism. Maybe it's, maybe it's membership so you can serve more fully. Maybe it's you know, stepping up and changing a habit. Whatever it is, he's calling to you. And if he is calling, you need to say, okay, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it because I take you at your word. Heavenly Father, help us to take you at your word. It's so easy for us to come up with reasons why this doesn't apply or that doesn't apply or you know, how you don't understand our situation or whatever it is. Father, help us to just believe you. Just have simple faith like a child and follow your word. Father, as we do that, we pray that you will come along beside us and, and uh, reward that faith and, and, and make it real to us and show us how you're working in our lives. Change our lives. We pray in Christ's name, amen. amen.
Thank you for listening to Hope for Life, the broadcast teaching ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington. You can learn more about our ministry on the internet at www.ferndalebaptist.com or you can contact us by mail at First Baptist Church, P.O. Box 69, Ferndale, Washington, 98248. Telephone 360-384-3111. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday mornings at 1045 a.m. Our prayer is that God's Word will give you hope for life.